Welcome. My name is Yvonne Bendinger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the EICC New York. This podcast is brought to you by the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Europeans and Americans connect to do business. To produce this series, we have asked our members from across Europe and the United States to discuss current events and how they may affect transatlantic business activities. In addition to this recording, I invite you to listen to all of our podcasts. You can find them on our website at eaccny.com right slash podcasts. I hope you will enjoy the insights our members together with my team have put together. And I encourage you to subscribe to the EACC podcast series on your favorite podcast server and to rate and share them with your friends and colleagues. Welcome back to the EACCNY Brexit Musings a podcast series that is designed to help you and your business best prepare for the possible outcomes and consequences of Brexit. My name is Paolo Fratini Melendez. I manage member engagement at the EACCNY, and I will be your host for this series. For this episode, I present Mark Chandler from within our membership. He is a managing partner and the chief market strategist for Bannockburn Global Forex. Some of his past experience includes his work at Brown Brothers, HSBC USA, and Mellon Bank. Alongside Mark, we have Kathleen Hayes here with us. Kathleen is a global economics and policy editor for Bloomberg Television and Radio. We are very excited to have you both here today to discuss your thoughts on the issues surrounding Brexit. Hi, Kathleen. You know, ahead of the weekend, at the end of the EU summit, we still don't really know whether the UK and the EU are going to reach a trade agreement. But the way Sterling has been holding up looks like they might. You know, what, what, what do you think is the biggest disruption? What's the disruption that you're watching, you know, as, as we get closer to this uh, Brexit situation? Well, certainly we know that the Brexit situation was perfectly timed to have the worst impact it possibly could on the UK economy. Why? What nobody foresaw, a pandemic that's in addition, smashing jobs, creating more weakness in the economy. Bloomberg Economics sees a drop of 0.5% growth in the first quarter next year and then growth next year. But I think what's so fascinating, Mark, who knew? that fish would become the big chip, right? The big bargaining chip in this whole thing, right? But fishing is so important to the UK, to France. In fact, Macron has is apparently reportedly hoping that Boris Johnson will collapse on this. Johnson says it's the starkest issue. And people say, Mark, it's very interesting that Boris kind of wins either way because either he gets what he wants from the EU on the fishing rights or he walks away and then they don't have to worry. All those fishermen who back in the early 70s in the UK, before they went into the EU, ended up giving up fishing rights they did not think they would have to do. And it's a big industry in many of these countries. And certainly like farming, fishing, having your fresh fish is very important. Half of what they export from the UK goes to the EU, half of the EU exports or more goes to the UK. So they're already very intertwined. But this is an issue. It's so important, for example, that in the 29, excuse me, 2019 elections in December, a Tory region uh, up in the north of the UK that hadn't won a seat in 44 years, you know, get on board with Brexit, et cetera. He won. The person running. That's how important it is in some of these areas. And it's clearly something right now that appears to be at the top of Boris Johnson's agenda. Yeah, it does seem like fishing, it seems like it's such a big issue outsized for its role in the GDPs of whether the EU or the UK. One of the things that I'm watching for a disruption is trucking. You know, here, here's what the problem is. It's really for a animal and food product. Every product that the UK would, a, a Tory, a, I'm sorry, a lorry, a truck would be coming over from Denmark 
and coming into the UK or from the UK into Denmark as the entry point for the EU, every animal or food product needs its own like certification. That means that you're a truck driver and heading for a grocery store and you've got a hundred different types of products on your lorry that you'll have to, uh, each one needs its own certificate. So bottom line here is whether the UK is, whether it's a hard exit by the WTO standards or they get some kind of last minute agreement, there's going to be a disruption there on the border and something like three quarters of the trucks are said not to be ready for this process. And so at least in the beginning, like you talk about a perfect storm, you've got the COVID, uh, this resurgence, you've got possible flu season, you've got the turn of the year, you've got these new rules and regulations where they didn't previously exist. What a mess. Well, you know, another thing to think about down the road is one of the quick fish is probably at the top of the list right now in, in, you know, in the next coming days in these negotiations. But right up next to that is subsidies for the EU. They want to be able to object, retaliate if the UK tries to put new subsidies under the domestic industries. And beyond that, another one that I think really has in terms of how the balance of trade shifts, how the UK starts trading with other parts of the world or doesn't. They want the UK to say that they're going to stand by EU standards for labor and the environment. And one specific issue that's been in and out of the news the past few months is food, because the EU has these very definite, specific rules about GMO, all kinds of things in their food. I think a lot of people, certainly the Europeans themselves, treasure their food because it has this high quality. What if the UK steps back from that? What if they want to bring in food from other countries to the UK more cheaply that don't stand up to those standards, right? I think this is a concern for the EU. And this is something, too, that will certainly shape at least one part of the economies for both sides, which is agriculture. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, these are like sort of the inside baseball. That's sort of like where the rubber hits the road as far as how it affects people's lives immediately. I think you're right. A, a, a disruption of some magnitude is coming. But maybe we can take a step back and think about what this means in the bigger picture. You know, a majority of the people in Scotland did not vote in favor of Brexit in the referendum in 2016. And now, at least according to some polls, a majority in favor of Scotland leaving to get, you know, if there's going to be another referendum. And I wonder about the Northern Irish situation as well. In some ways, they still haven't really figured out how to balance the UK leaving from the EU and the Good Friday Agreement. But what do you think? Do you think that the UK, say five years from now, is going to be the United Kingdom still? Or is it going to be uh, England and uh, Scotland and Northern Ireland get independence? Well, let's, let's look at some, one very pragmatic issue. If you're Scotland and you want to leave the United Kingdom and you can vote on that, fine. Are you so sure the European Union will want to let you in, right? There's a little tiny country. You know, are they going to let everybody in? If they let Scotland in after it leaves the UK, what about uh, Catalonia in Spain? What if they somehow manage what they don't think they ever will ever accept? But still, you see, I mean, I think that's one thing that is totally unclear. So you don't really know how that's going to shake out. With Northern Ireland, obviously, the fear is that if you have to start putting on customs checks between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to the south, somehow, psychologically, what, emotionally, historically, that starts underscoring that you still have two parts of Ireland that shed blood to get to the point they are now where they are at peace and they do have some kind of union. And I think there's still a big concern how that is going to play out. 
And it's totally not clear. It's never been clear. Member Theresa May tried to make it clearer. And that's one of the reasons Boris Johnson and others were able to unseat her. But guess what? You know, this current government hasn't figured it out either. But yeah, no, it's quite a challenge. So in some ways, what I marvel at is this. The irony is that some of the arguments that the EU used against the UK to try to like persuade them to stay in and the benefits of union. And the same arguments that the UK gives to Scotland about why they should stay as part of <laughs> part of the UK. I, I suppose it all depends on where you sit. What, what, what else do you think sort of like, think about like how, the, how it's going to look like five or 10 years from now for the, say, an independent UK that's still away from the EU. One, one of the things that concerns me is that I sort of see these larger economic areas developing. So besides the EU, you got the rise of China. You already, of course, you have the US, which is the world's biggest economy. But besides China, US, EU, India has moved into fifth place in terms of the size of the world economies. And I just wonder, what's the place, what's the place in the future for the UK, which is a fairly wealthy, but relatively small economy, standing by its own? Will it have the economy to scale for its own auto sector? But what about its nuclear weapons? That's its real claim to Security Council at the UN. I wonder about the future of the UK. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting when you, you bring up the nuclear weapons, because for a lot of countries, I think that's why they want to have them or keep them, is because it does give them a certain kind of power that others don't. Also, the UK in general, militarily, they've certainly hopped right in very quickly and with a big commitment to war efforts that have sprung up in the Middle East, you know, in the last decade or so alongside the US. So that's certainly something. And I, I imagine that Boris Johnson will continue to try to foster that, pound on that, whoever wins the White House. Uh, but, you know, again, to give you a specific and to think about how this could shift, I mean, India and of course, England, Great Britain, have an historic relationship, you have to wonder if they, you have to the extent to which the government will now try to build on that, foment that. One part of um, the British workforce that apparently stands to be hurt by the Brexit, if it isn't, if the terms aren't worked out properly, is accountants. It's business and professional services. They're 13% of UK workers, and they're the biggest export industry in the UK who knew, right? I mean, this is this services, white collar, but they're perhaps maybe they'll well work on that uh, growing market in India, for example, or other countries where they can now go and find regions where people could benefit from these, you know, decades, maybe centuries of expertise of experience that the UK has. Yes, it is true. Really amazing, like what that what that means. But I wonder if like if the UK is this on its own that there's an effort by the EU to get a financial center on the continent and challenge those white collar bankers and accountants and try to develop financial centers. And, you know, Paris has always wanted to be one. Frankfurt makes a claim as well. And I wonder if the, if over time that Europe is able, continental Europe is able to develop a rival financial center, especially if, you know, if you, th if you think about what the powers that they could have for, for example, how long UK banks can clear Euro deposits. And so I, I wonder, what, what do you think? Do you, I mean, because I know you talk to so many people. And, uh, well, of course, London is still like a key financial center for fixed income, for currencies, for analysis, for accounting, for taxes. Well, when you, of course, when you start getting into banking, it's so complicated and laws are so different. And just to you know, kind of make a little parallel observation, look what's happening right now as there's questions about Hong Kong remaining a center. And Tokyo, for example, Japan wanted to step up, but there's a big difference in some very key kinds of laws and regulations. So that's an issue. But back to 
the UK and the, the jobs and the companies and the buildings and the commercial rents and investments that have already left, so far Ireland is the winner. They're at the top of the list in terms of the most companies moving, the most people, et cetera. So maybe look out for Dublin. But for sure, the shift is happening. What remains to be seen who really ends up as the center. I want to ask you, though, Mark, because you deal with so many different kinds of transactions, focus on foreign exchange, but how it deals with how it affects real companies, right? And people really trying to do business. Do you think there'll be something where there's, you know, maybe three centers, which each center having a slightly different focus or some kind of expertise or advantage over the other that allows more than one to flourish? It's a, it's a pretty big area, the EU. Yeah, I think that a lot of small, medium-sized businesses that I talk to, they have sort of embraced the UK as sort of the foothold into the EU. The language it makes it easier for many of them, of course, and they can use at least in the last 40 years or so, 50 years almost, they're able to use the UK as sort of the uh, the export platform to begin uh, making penetration into Europe. And I think that that type of business strategy will have to be rethought. And that's why Ireland, I think, is appealing, not just for the financiers, but also for companies looking for that foothold into the EU and feeling comfortable with the language as well as like the common law, back, you know, the common law backed contracts. Standing on the same kind of issue as some businesses, some industries are going to find it in their interest to, to leave the UK and then it becomes like incumbent on the UK to find ways to attract either new industries or to uh, find more competitive in the old industries. I think the UK is going to have to reinvent itself, which might be a very That's American concept. Uh, well, Switzerland hasn't done too badly, has it? And it's a very you know, small country, very independent, a lot of its own rules, and yet uh, nobody questions its prowess as a finance center of some kind. Exactly. So, so, that, so that maybe, maybe too, where it fits into the time zone, and that the L- London has sort of, it's sort of like their place to lose if they mishandle it, but they're still in a key place. And like you say, a lot, there's a lot of experience and intellectual, like experiential power and influence there. It's an interesting question, though, because, you know, I find it hard to see that the UK won't and both sides won't get through this transition. And there'll be the short term and medium term adjustments, because, for example, the tariffs on exports and imports for, for both sides, that could change the balance of what is and isn't traded imports, because the UK imports tend to be more like the high quality end of the food chain are going to increase their costs. But presumably, that's something that, that levels out, something everyone adjusts to, and then they continue to do business in this next phase. It's, and it's not to say, I would imagine, that if it was the EU and the UK become two separate entities again, that there's always room to go back to the table on trade and negotiate and see how this really evolves over time. And of course, the craziest thing of all would be if the next generation of Brits says, you know, we, why did our grandparents and our parents vote to leave the EU? Come on, it's, you know, it, it's all one world. We all are on social media together. So, you know, why don't we just, why don't we just grow up and go back in? Let's, let's talk to our counterparts, right? Yeah, no, it is, it is true, I think, what you say. And I think that would be sort of a shock to a lot of people is that the UK leaves, maybe, uh, maybe with a deal, maybe without a deal. And like you say, they can always negotiate again. But that doesn't really change that much. Even here today, you know, as we speak here today, sort of waiting for how the UK responds to the end of the EU summit, uh, that sterling has held up fairly well. I mean, it's it's more or less in, say, the middle third of this week's range. The market seems to be taking this uh, well in stride. 
And, you know, the UK also, with the COVID and the weakening of the economy, it does look like the Bank of England is going to ease policy again next month. And so maybe it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Well, central banks around the world have their toolkit. And yes, that's expectation. November, they'll increase their bond purchases. I know Bloomberg Economics is looking for a $100 billion increase. And from, you know, Andrew Bailey, the head of the BOE, uh, throughout the board, they're all talking about, oh, this is in our toolkit. And I think people are saying that it's possible that if they're pre-go to negative rate preparation, which has a lot to do, of course, with banks are done by the first quarter, that would open the door wider to them. But negative rate or not, they'll probably do enough bond purchases again to get them over the hump to equal some kind of added stimulus that you could have gotten maybe through negative rates. But right now it does seem that the central bank is more of the easing valve or the the valve that backs you up. It's that cushion because the main action and the whole story right now is being driven by the government. And certainly these Brexit talks and where they end up and how quickly they end up is a big part of that. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Now that concludes this podcast episode with Mark Chandler from Ben Byrne and Kathleen Hayes from Bloomberg. Thank you very much for joining us in this series. I would also like to quickly thank our audience. We hope that you enjoyed listening to our program and stay tuned for our next podcast episode where we muse about Brexit. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Please remember to subscribe and rate this episode and be sure to check out the complete list of recordings on our website at eaccny.com right slash podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments about this series, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us at membership at eaccny.com to learn more about our work, how to get involved, and how to join our transatlantic network.